We'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 2. I'll give you time to find the page there. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how it is that each hear them in our own language, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on the bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in our midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God, men, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always 
in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be, be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You, sh- you shall make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an, with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ and that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house again today. I've had a song on my heart this week. I'd like to begin the message 
by just singing the chorus to the song. I do believe it's appropriate to the text that we're looking at this morning. If you happen to know it, feel free to sing along. I could never praise Him enough for the cross of Calvary. I could never thank Him enough for salvation full and free. I could never do anything to deserve such perfect love. Oh, for everything He's done, I could never praise Him enough. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the cross of Calvary. Just been reminded of that even more this past week. Thank you, Lord, for opportunities to worship you, opportunities to sing praises to your name. Not only to sing, but Lord, to recognize the very words that we're singing, what those words are. To be drawn to the amazing love that you've shown toward us. Father, we do thank you for Calvary. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christ. This morning, Lord, I pray your word would go forth. That it would accomplish the very purposes for which you intend. Father, I pray that we would hear and listen and be attentive this morning to the voice of your Holy Spirit. That your Spirit would apply these truths to our lives that we might be sanctified, that we might become more like your son Jesus. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin looking at a few scriptures. In Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32, just before Jesus goes to the cross... Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter. And the Lord says, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Just stop and think about that one for just a moment. Jesus praying for you. Tell Simon, I've prayed for you. That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me. See, Jesus already knew what was about to happen with Peter. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That's what Jesus says. My question is, by what means would he strengthen them? Would it not be the preached word? And not be his life example? But definitely the preached word, and we see that to be true here in Acts chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 3, once again... This never gets old, and and this is good to remind us always of, of any scripture that we might be preaching and teaching on a given Sunday. But you must continue in the things which you've learned, Paul says, and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known, what? The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation 
The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The very things we're going to see today in Acts chapter 2. You see, if there is... In this word, if it is profitable, as the word says that it is. Should there not then be a desire for this word in your life? Why is it that we would desire to live our life any other way apart from this word? 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes. There are some here who are about to have newborn babes. Paul, Peter says here, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of what? Of the word. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Anyone here this morning tasted that the Lord is gracious? Amen. Yeah. Hopefully that's about all of us here. And hopefully there's a desire here in light of His grace that saved us, in light of His grace in our lives, that we too would desire this Word. In that same context, it says the Word of the Lord endures forever. A constant feeding upon the Word will nourish your soul. And then we've got Corinthians chapter 1, 20 and 21. I love these words. Paul says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the things of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, the preached word of God holds a central place in the life of the church. We'll see here next week that it holds a, a place in the life of this early church. They devoted themselves to what's listed here as the apostles' doctrine. And today's text right here is the first of several sermons or, or speeches throughout the book of Acts. Drawing attention to Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. And the word of God is held forth to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. And you know, every Sunday the preached word goes forth. The question is this, how does his word land on your ears? Is it heard quickly and snatched away? Like that seed sown on the hard path? Is it heard for a time only to wither in your heart due to a lack of depth, that rocky soil? Is it heard and then quickly choked out by the cares of this world, those, those competing desires that clamor for your attention? The hope is that the word of God settles in your heart, accomplishing the very purpose 
for which God sent it to you. The hope is that the word gets in you, serving as a restraining device for the sin which, as the Hebrew writer says, so easily entangles. Peter stands to speak once again. Acts 2, verse 14. The sermon Peter speaks comes immediately following the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This sermon, I believe, is quite different than a typical sermon that you might associate with a sermon. I don't get the impression that Peter spent a week or two necessarily preparing this message. A little different. But I do believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit, he was given a message to speak. And he wasn't just given a message to speak in general, but context helps us see the appropriate avenue for Peter standing to speak. Once again, context becomes very important. You see, the multitude had gathered to Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, Acts 2 verse 5 says. Remember, they too heard the sound, and they wondered what they were hearing, for they were hearing words in their own native language. And they were amazed at who was speaking, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, right? And they were perplexed at the content of their message. For they heard, what they hear? Verse 11, the wonderful works of God. And the result of such an event caused the multitude to ask a very logical question. Whatever could these things mean? What's this about? And we saw last week the first response given in verse 13. Others mocking said, they're full of sweet wine. Well, on the heels of that initial answer, Peter then, verse 14, stands with the eleven. I love the fact that that's included. He stands with the eleven. Remember, at the end of Acts chapter 1, they fulfilled scripture replacing Judas with Matthias. And now Peter stands, not with ten, but with eleven. And he raises his voice. And he begins to address the question. Verse 12 becomes a very important verse because it provides the context for Peter standing to speak. Okay, so, so you might mark verse 12 because verse 12... Keep coming back to verse 12. Whatever could this mean? Whatever could this mean? Peter isn't going to answer. He's going to answer that question. But notice how he progresses through this preached word. In verse 14, he's simply calling the multitude to hear. Verse 15, he's going to refute those who responded first. Those speaking in verse 13. And then a large portion of this text. He's going to correct them on what this does mean. You know, I I love the fact that he doesn't just say, no, they're wrong, but he says, let me explain to you what this means. And then we're going to see, after he does that, we're going to see how he calls the multitude to repentance. 
and faith in Christ. And then finally we'll see in verse 41, God's results from His Word preached. God's results from His Word preached. So in Acts 2.14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Heed my words. You know, I was thinking about the psalmist. Psalm 119, familiar passage. How can a man cleanse his way? By what? Taking heed according to your word. Peter addresses all those gathered and exhorts them right up front to take heed to what he's about to say. It's important to understand Peter is not drawing men to himself here. He's not calling attention to himself as though he has wisdom above and beyond those gathered. As the one standing to speak this day, he's intentional about calling them to attention. Incline your ears to hear what I'm about to say. You see, the preacher had better be about exposing the word of God to the flock entrusted to his care. And the preacher has something to say when the word of God is on his lips. And Peter has the word of God, as we'll see, on his lips. He has something to say when the word of God is like a a fire in his bones, ready to come out with all the authority of the king of kings. He preaches not because he has to, but because he is under obligation. Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Peter is going to preach the gospel, but he uses the context of Pentecost, the context of the question in verse 12, to do so. Okay, So the preached word is timely. It meets you in the very intersections of life, wherever you might be. Have you ever sat in on a message? Whether it's here or somewhere else, listen to a message, and you wonder, how did that guy know that about my life? How did he? I mean, he's speaking like right to what I'm going through right now. Have you ever been there? I have. I've sat and I've listened, I've heard, and I've wondered, wow, this is, phew, this couldn't be any more applicable to me right now (laughs) that happens his word brings life it breathes life it provides hope it ministers to the weary soul the mournful heart the hurting the one going through trials anyone going through a trial right now anyone go ahead and raise your hand it's okay because see if everybody if someone sees that you're going through a trial that that's That's how we can pray for one another. So it's no big deal, right? I mean, we go through them. If we haven't gone through one, if you by chance haven't gone through a trial, first of all, I want to meet you if you haven't gone through one. Some of you are going through one right now. And others of you maybe have come out of one and perhaps down the road will go into another. Trials are a part of this life. That's that's why James, I believe, says, consider it pure joy when you encounter those trials. He doesn't say if, it's when. They're bound to come. The word has something to say. And so Peter stands to speak at Pentecost. But I, but I need to 
to let you know something else about this word. It not only was spoken through Peter on this day, but it does speak to your situation yet today. It provides wisdom and counsel, discernment, understanding. It provides, here it is, it provides God's perspective, which is what we need, right? It provides God's perspective on your life and serves as the guide for navigating through this life. And so, really up front, the word is to hear what the word of God says. I don't stand up here to preach with, as Paul says, persuasive words that you might be attracted to me. It's my hope that you would be attracted to Christ. It's my hope that this word of God would be attractive to you. Not just today on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday as well. That this word would go with you wherever you go. That you would delight in Christ and delight in his word. And it's my hope that your faith would rest not in the wisdom of men, whether that be myself, Kevin, or Ralph, anyone here who preaches, or any other preachers that you might listen to. Don't rest your faith upon a man. Rest it upon the power of God. That's what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 2. Read, read chapter 2, 1 through 5 sometime. After calling the multitude to attention, to, to hear, what does he have to say? Well, second thing here in the text he does is he refutes those who responded in verse 13, those first responders. He says, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So he begins his message by countering what has already been put forward as an answer to the question in verse 12. Peter refutes the initial word put forth by some who spoke in mocking fashion. Remember that? Reminds me of what Titus, what we find there, Paul writing to Titus in Titus chapter 1. And there in chapter 1, he's exhorting Titus to hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught. We know this particular section as elder qualifications, but church, I need to tell you, this is not just for an elder. This is is good for for all, (laughs) okay, especially all you men, young men. Holding fast faithful word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to do what? Exhort and convict Those who contradict. And a little bit later on he says, rebuke them sharply. See, there were some who were throwing households into disarray. And Paul is is exhorting Titus to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The rebuke had a purpose to it. That they may be sound in the faith. Proverbs 26, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Why, if you have the truth of God's word in you, would you allow a fool's voice to win the day? Why? If the truth of the word is not being spoken, how do you tend to respond? Do you shy away from speaking? Afraid of what someone might think of you? 
Do you tend to remain silent even though you know what the Word of God says? Are you, as the Bible says, are you hiding His Word under a bushel? Or are you going to let it shine? How do you respond? Praise the Lord, Peter speaks to the multitude, moved along by the Holy Spirit. These are not drunk as some of you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. You see, to, to be drunk is to be controlled by another substance. Drunkenness alters one's way of thinking, which impacts, does it not, one's speaking, one's acting. If you've ever been around someone who's been intoxicated, you know that their words are incomplete, incoherent, jarbled. Their, their speech makes little sense. Their mannerisms and body language accompany their speech. Excessive alcohol produces an out-of-control experience, quite the opposite from being filled with the Holy Spirit, which bears the fruit of what? Self-control. There's a difference, big difference. In fact, Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, and then he's going to give characteristics of what that means to be filled with the Spirit. Here it is. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. See, the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit has a certain demeanor about him. He, he speaks a certain way. He sings and makes melody in his heart to the Lord. He doesn't just look at the words on the page. He sings them out, even though he may not be able to, in his own opinion, sing. We're called to sing unto the Lord. Make melody in our hearts. That's characteristic of one who has the Spirit in him. Well, also, another characteristic is that he's grateful to God for all things. Are you a grateful person? Do you show gratitude to God? He's submissive to one another. If, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the results are evident according to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Without here in Acts 2 belaboring the matter, Peter moves forward to tell the multitude the true meaning of this confusing sound. All right, Acts 2.16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So, verses 16 through 36, he's going to correct them on what this does mean. Here's what it doesn't mean, but here's now what it does mean. And he's going to direct them to the word of God. Remember the question in Acts 2, verse 12. That's the key contextual piece right here that's needed. Whatever could this mean? And so, after refuting what the mockers had to say, he then explains to them... The meaning of what they are hearing. And I want you to see something very important in verse 16. I believe a great principle for each of you to take note of. Peter immediately starts with the word. He, I'll say that again. That sounds simple. It's intended to be simple. But sometimes we forget this very simple thing. Peter begins with the word. 
You know, today there's this thing out there that in trying to explain something to someone, we have to first get on their boat and get in their boat and get a feel for what they're doing and feel for their lifestyle and feel for... I want to encourage the church that this word, this ought to be foundational, this ought to be presuppositional in our conversations with folks. This is what we stand upon. We don't go to something else and then maybe perhaps, oh, if it ties in, if we get to it, we'll come to the word. No! Start with the word, continue with the word, finish with the word. I believe that's the pattern. Okay, I'm going to go further. Some of you perhaps are frightened by that idea. And it could be a list of things, a list of reasons why you're frightened. Well, I don't know the word that well. Well, if that's the reason, let me encourage you. Get in the word. Open the word. See what the word has to say. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he's going to give you words to speak, is he not? Isn't that what it says? Some of you think someone else, oh, someone else will do it. No. Being in Christ does not mean you can sit on the bleachers while someone else goes and does the work. Being in Christ means you are a part of the action now. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you're in Christ. And according to what Peter says, you have everything you need for godliness and life. Holy Spirit. You've given, he's been given to you. The resource necessary to speak. Don't miss the opportunities. Begin with the word. Begin with the word. Continue with the word. End with the word. He, Peter uses the word throughout. And here's the great thing. When you're talking to someone, and, and especially another believer, I, I especially enjoy the idea of another believer because now if they're professing to be a believer, what do we have in common? We have Christ, but we also have the Word. So we can hold each other accountable to what the Word says. Yes, it's going to be more difficult for someone who's not in Christ when you put the Word forth. But we also need to understand this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Does not the Bible say in John chapter 16 that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of what? Sin. Why do we shy away from putting the Bible out there? Let's, you know, if we go through the book of Acts, if, if we don't get anything besides some of these speeches and sermons that are put forth... They're, they're pointing people to Christ and to the Word. We need, to, we need to take heed to that and how they're doing it. I believe that's very effective. Very effective. I, I believe it's effective just in the simple point that, that God's going to honor His Word going forth, is He not? 
So what does he do? He turns their attention to Joel. The book of Joel. One of the prophets, right? One of those, what we refer to as the minor prophets. He's not minor because he's less important, by the way. Okay? Just happens to be, categorically, the way they've kind of, you know, major and minor. He doesn't have as much space as some of the major ones. Okay? But he's definitely not minor in terms of content. If you read the book of Joel, if you haven't lately, I encourage you to read it. It's a good read. One of the prophets, he ministered to southern kingdom during the reign of Joash. 835, 796 B.C., okay, long time ago from when this was written. If you know anything about the book of Joel, you probably remember a plague of locusts, right? How many of you remember that? Plague of locusts. That's usually one of the things people remember about the book of Joel. And these locusts, they ate everything. I mean, literally. They just, they just devoured everything. Uh, read a couple of verses, 11 and 12, chapter 1 of Joel. He says, be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field have withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. You see, the locust invasion from the Lord affected everything. Joel chapter 1, verse 20, the beasts of the field also cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. See, this affected not only just the crops, but also affected the beasts of field. This was widespread. And as bad as things seem to be for Judah, the Lord is drawing their attention to another day coming, the day of the Lord's judgment. And that day of the Lord, according to Joel 2.11, is a great and very terrible day. Who can endure it? In light of that day to come, Joel then calls the people to repent. Chapter 2, 12 and 13, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. In the response to the people's repentance... It's found in, in Joel 2, 18 and 25 and 26. The Lord, will, the Lord, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. So, so I will restore to you, the Lord says, the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, all kinds of locusts. The locusts were all around. They had taken out everything. And the Lord says, I'm going to restore to you my great army which I sent to you. The Lord says you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then right on the heels of that, church, we read these words in Joel 2, 28. Which are, by the way, the very words used by Peter in Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant 
whom the Lord calls. So Peter, back to Acts 2, says, you want to know what this sound is that you're hearing? You want an explanation for your confusion? Let me point you to the word of God. Let me point you to the prophet Joel. He spoke about this very thing. He said that this was going to happen. You see, Joel speaks of the Holy Spirit to come. The judgment of Christ yet to come. And yet takes opportunity in that same text, in light of what's to come, to point people to the right right response. What's the right response? And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, church, this invitation still goes out today, does it not? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter 10, right? Right there, Paul adds in that same chapter in Romans 10, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So look where Peter goes in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. There's another imperative. Hear these words. He's already said that. He, take heed to what I'm saying. Now he's saying again, a little differently. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Having just spoken... About the prophecy concerning the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Peter then points the multitude back to Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested, authenticated, appointed by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And you know, I find it interesting. I don't know if this was something you came across, but I do find it interesting that Peter continues his message after verse 21. I mean, after all, didn't he, didn't he give a, a suitable explanation of what they were hearing? I got to thinking, that, that was a pretty good, pretty good piece of evidence there, Peter. He refuted the mockers, submitted the truth of God's word. He exchanged the lie for the truth of God's word. The opposite of Romans 1, right? So why continue on? What what else needs to be said here in context? And then it dawned on me. Peter stands to speak. And he speaks on this day filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, he would manifest one thing for sure. The very words of Christ. See, we've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Doesn't he point one to the very words of Christ? Call them to remembrance of the things of Christ. So, the Spirit of God points toward Christ. 
as a child of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter can't stop at the prophecy of Joel. He's compelled to preach Christ. And that's what he does beginning in verse 22. That's why he says, hear these words. Oh, it's good to point back to prophecy, Old Testament prophecies, and to be able to see this Christ to come, be able to see the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful to be able to piece the old and the new together. But church, it's also a wonderful thing to be able to preach Christ. And Peter doesn't pass it up. And he's going to show not only the Old Testament prophecies talked about the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but now what he's going to do, this is good, now what he's going to do is he's going to start with Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to show the people the connection between the arrival of the Holy Spirit. How did we get to this point? And he's going to start right with Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to walk them through. And he's going to show them, here's how we get to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Here's what was prophesied back here. But let's start with Jesus. This is good preaching right here. And this is not Peter in the flesh. This is the Holy Spirit using him. Right? So, that's where he goes. These are compelling words here. These compelling words that he speaks of Jesus. First of all, you know, it's it's important that um, we see it out of the gate in verse 22. A man, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. Right? God... Let's just put it this way. Let, let's, let's, let's paraphrase what this says. God sent his son. A man. Refers to him as a man. And this God that we know sent his son when the time had fully come, right? To redeem those under the law. Galatians chapter 4 says. He came at the right time. God sent his son. And he demonstrated his own unique love in sending his son. He was fully God and fully man. This Jesus that we're talking about. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the perfect requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk in the flesh but according to the spirit. That's what Romans chapter 8, 3 and 4 says. And also like the Hebrew writer in chapter 2 gives us an understanding of why he had to come. What's the importance? In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so Peter points to the life of Christ here in verse 22, a life that the men of Israel would have known well. They would have known His miracles, his signs, wonders done among the people. But then we see in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. We see here God in his sovereignty wills the cross for his son. And you know, this is is interesting because while the Jewish governing authorities were plotting to hand Jesus over to the Gentiles for the purpose of condemning him to death on a cross, God was orchestrating his great salvation plan. 
lawless men handed him over to be crucified. But all the while, God was orchestrating and carrying out his salvation plan. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. Luke twenty two forty two. Jesus is praying in the garden. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was the Father's will? I believe we see that as we continue reading the gospel account. That it was the cross. The Father willed the cross for his Son. That through him, he might reconcile the world to himself in his own flesh, Colossians 1 says. Serving as the perfect lamb who would take away the sins of the world, John 1, speaks of him being that perfect lamb of God. Verse 24. Whom God raised up having loosed or destroyed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Verse 22 speaks to the life of Christ. Verse 23 speaks to his death, his crucifixion. Verse 24 speaks to his resurrection. Are you seeing the pieces of the gospel here? Peter's, Peter's laying this forward here for people to hear. He's putting it forward and he's, he's piecing things together to help them to see what this means. He's already explained in part by looking back at Old Testament prophecy. Here's what the Old Testament had to say about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let's start right here with Jesus and his arrival here on the scene. His life, his ministry, his miracles, his signs, his wonders. What that led to was a death on the cross. Lawless men put him to death. But oh, let's, let's make sure we understand this was all done and by, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God knew this in his sovereignty. He knew this. He had a plan for his son. His son was going to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now here in verse 24, God raised up Jesus. So Peter moves from the arrival of Christ to death on the cross and now speaks of his resurrection. God having loosed or destroyed the pains of death because it was not possible. It was not possible. In other words, it was impossible. It was not possible that Jesus should be held by it. Praise the Lord for that. In fact, I, I believe Paul, doesn't he speak to that very same thing at the end of chapter 15, Corinthians? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have that victory in Christ only because of what Christ did at the cross and the fact that 
He was raised. God raised him. If you notice in this, in this speech, in this sermon that Peter gives in Acts 2, I want you to notice how many times God's name is put in there. God is the active agent. God is the one who's working these miracle signs and wonders through Jesus. God sent his son. God raised him up. Right here, at this point, verse 25, Acts 2, Peter gives additional scriptural evidence as to how death could have no hold on Jesus. That's the last statement. Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The question comes in, well, how is that so? How is it that death could have no hold on him? Okay, there's his factual statement. Now he's going to follow it up with evidence. Evidence is going to come from where? Scripture. So he takes this word from David, the Psalms. Psalm 16. If you turn to Psalm. Psalm chapter 16 is where we get this next word. And I'll just read 5 through 11. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I have a good inheritance. And church, you have a good inheritance as well if you have the deposit, the guarantee within you. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons... Here it is. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope or dwell securely. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. There it is. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Being with the Lord, the presence of the Lord, being with Christ. Remember, we've talked about that union with Christ and not only crucified with Christ, but also raised with Christ. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, that being raised with Christ equates to walking in newness of life. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected is the word that goes forward in the book of Acts. If you continue reading the book of Acts, you're going to see Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. He's raised. He's been raised from the dead. That's the message. In fact, we're going to see very shortly... That's a message that gets them put in prison. The rulers, the governing authorities, want to slap them on the wrist and, and, and whip them, beat them, and say, don't preach and teach about Christ's resurrection. And these guys just simply say, we can't help speaking about the things we've seen and heard. And they keep on doing it. Because you see, they were to be witnesses, were they not? Of Jesus. That's what the power in them was doing. They were to wait for the power from on high that they might then be witnesses to Jesus. And that's what they did, church. And that's what you and me ought to be doing as well. Acts 2, 32. By the way, there's a lot here that we could just do more of a deep dive on. But I really desired to, to take the, the message as a whole seeing that it was one, one speech, one talk, one word that he gives. 
This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Acts 1.8, remember? You shall be witnesses to me. John 15, 26 and 27 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also, Jesus says, will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And you even remember Acts chapter 1, verse 22. That was one of the criteria for being an apostle. Beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become what? A witness with us of his resurrection. Further explanation of how Jesus connects with the outpouring of the Spirit, which they are now seeing and hearing. Look at Acts 2.33. This is wonderful. He's tying this together now. Okay? 2.33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. What's that making reference to, church? The ascension. Right? He's talked about the life of Christ. He's talked about the death of Christ. Talk about the resurrection of Christ. Now having been exalted, it's the ascended Christ. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay, wait, as you're reading this, you ought to be going, there ought to be this flashing neon sign going boom, boom, boom. And that ought to point you right back to Acts chapter 1 because that's what's been talked about here. That's what they were waiting for. The promise of the Father. And so Peter is saying these very things in verse 33. Being exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus now has been ascended. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this. Do you see what Peter's saying? Christ is now ascended. And having ascended, he is now pouring out. That idea of pouring out has an idea of abundance. All the more reason why it makes me wonder sometimes if the Spirit of Christ is in you, it ought to be be showing. It ought to be manifested in your life, in your face, but in your life, in the things that you do, even in the words that we sing, how we sing. I want to encourage some of you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. This is one practical way. But when we sing, we sing unto the Lord. And so as we sing unto the Lord, don't worry about how well you sing. How well you think you might sing. Some of you think you can only sing by yourself while you're alone off in some corner somewhere. You don't want anybody to hear you because you can't stay on a note. You know what? If the Spirit of Christ is in you, one of the characteristics, Ephesians 5, says you're going to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Sing. Because, you know what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you can stay all the way through that song on the same key. Yeah, it's, it's more pleasant, but, you know, the Holy Spirit in you. And that's where Peter is going with this. He's connecting it right here in verse 33. This is a wonderful connect right here in verse 33. Because, remember the question, whatever could this mean? Verse 33, Christ having been exalted... And having received from the Father, do you see that exchange? Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Okay, so the evidence of the Holy Spirit is not something they're just hearing now. It's something that they're able to see now. Same ought to be true in our lives. 
the evidence of the Holy Spirit ought not simply be what they hear from us, those of us in Christ, but it ought to be what they see, what they see us doing, what they see us about. Well, he backs up verse 33 with more evidence from Scripture. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, this is from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See, David here looking, and by the way, Jesus spoke these words in the gospel, right? He, he, this was one of the questions he posed to, to the Pharisees, I believe it was. It was sort of a riddle to them. <laughs> they didn't even give it an answer. They couldn't answer it. They couldn't respond to it. But the idea of David being able to foresee, David being able to look ahead and see in his line. By the way, in case you want to look at the Scripture and what the Scripture has to say, just, just turn to Matthew chapter 1, and you can see that genealogy. And you'll be able to see David in there. And if you keep going through the genealogy, you're going to arrive at Jesus Christ. And so, the wonderful news here, verse 30, if I back up just for a moment, because, because Peter just elaborates on this. He says, let me speak freely to you for just a moment about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Hey, you know what? David is buried. He's dead. But he goes on and says, being a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, Psalm 132, verse 11, I believe, is the text. What did God swear with an oath to him? That of the fruit of his body, that there was going to come one in his line, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Isn't that something? So David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And it's this Jesus that God raised up, Peter says, of which we're all witnesses. You see, the Lord now having ascended, verse 34 and 35 is a testimony to the fact that Christ has risen. He has ascended. The glorious Lord, He is with the Father. So 36 then. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Isn't it interesting how many times he says this Jesus? Pointing this, this one, this Jesus. Let's be clear on who we're talking about here. Whom you crucified. Ouch. Remember who he's speaking to. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, the Messiah. Notice, starting in verse 37, we see the response and Peter's call to repentance and faith. Notice what happens when they hear the word. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked. They were cut. They were, they were, this penetrated them. This, this impacted them deeply. 
I think perhaps this, this verse, these few verses right here, have become so familiar. We've lost, we've lost sight of what these really meant. Peter has just said, talked about this Jesus who lived and did signs and miracles and wonders before their very eyes. This was the Christ who went to the cross. Lawless men handed him over. He was killed. He was crucified. Oh, but God raised him. And he ascended. And now there's a call to response. And the response, I believe, on behalf of the hearers is very clear. Because you see, these people, and we read about this a little bit in Romans, these people stumbled over the stumbling stone. And when they heard the word preached, they were cut to the heart. And they ask right here, they ask another question. Remember the question in verse 12? Whatever could this mean? The word gets preached and now they ask another question. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Tell us, Peter, apostles, tell us. What shall we do? That's where they're at right here in verse 37. And Peter says, look, in verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's truly what it is, church. It's a gift. For the promise, what promise? Look back up in 33. The promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children. Okay, this promise extends beyond generations, doesn't it? And to all who are afar off. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians 2.13. We who once were far away have been brought near what? By the blood of Jesus. The promise is for you. As many as the Lord our God will call. You see, salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. It's a work of God. And praise the Lord that He's opened your eyes to see, He's opened your ears to hear the truth of His Word. Because we were walking a certain direction. And when the Lord got a hold of us, He's turned us around. And in some ways, is that not what repentance, repent, when He says repent, because you see, they were living in such a way, they were essentially profaning the Christ, profaning what it is He came and did for them. This Christ laid down his very life for them and they missed it. Church, let's not look just some 2,000 years ago. Let's move it closer. There are some of you here today who in the very same way have been missing it. You're missing Jesus. And don't think for one moment that it was just the Jewish people who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. No, it was the sin 
that held him on the cross. Whose sin? Not just sin of certain people, those Jewish people. No. Your sin and my sin. And maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you have not dealt with the sin in your life. Maybe you've just dabbled around with it and you've thought, oh, it's okay. As long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I, and you can fill in your list. No. Until you repent of your sin, you are essentially saying, you are okay, fine, with taking responsibility for your own sin. You know, there's a word here Peter's preaching, and he does talk about, even through that prophecy in Joel, there's a day yet to come. There's a day of judgment. Paul says this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, knowing the judgment of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm doing that this morning. Some of you may not know the Lord. You may think you know the Lord, but you've not ever ever to this point dealt with your sin. Your sin has never been seen in the same light God and his word puts forth what sin is. Sin is ugly. Sin entangles. Sin is messy. Sin separates us from the Lord. But praise God, he doesn't leave it there. He gives us a way, shows us a way. Repent, turn from your sin. Don't go back to it. This is not just, I'm sorry. Repent from it. Get rid of it. Flee from it. Pursue Christ. Pursue his righteousness. Pursue his love. Pursue all of those things in Galatians 5 that speak of the fruit of the Spirit. Pursue those things. Pursue the Philippians 4, 8 things. Think about those things. Pursue the Colossians 3 things. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Pursue those things. Church, this word is a word that was preached, yes, some 2,000 years ago, but it's a word that needs to be preached today right now. Sin is very much alive where we live. Sin needs to be handled and dealt with. And it can be. According to the word, what are we called to do? Repent. Repent and be baptized. In whose name? In the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church, verse 39 ought to be in a great encouragement to you. This promise is to you, to your children, and, and this, this ought to be an encouragement to those you're praying for right now who don't have the Lord Jesus in their life, to all who are afar off. How many of you know somebody right now who's afar off? I do. In need of the Lord, this promise is for them. As many as the Lord our God will call. And, and notice verse 40. We're about done. Hang in there. Okay? He's called them to repentance and faith. But verse 40 tells us that even what we have recorded here by Luke, moved by the Holy Spirit, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. I believe I came across somebody who's saying that if, if this was read, this just what we have here, this was like maybe three minutes. Now, you and I know Peter. I don't think Peter just talked for three minutes. 
And verse 40 tells us, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, pleaded with them, saying, be saved from this perverse, crooked generation. And here's God's results, verse 41. God's results, let's, let's be mindful of this. This is God's results from God's word preached. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. I don't know about you, that makes me smile. When you've been a part of a baptism service, I don't know what you call that, just an event, or people are getting baptized, and someone goes down into the water, and they come up out of the water, that never gets old. When someone has a change of heart that the Lord through the Holy Spirit has convicted them, has enabled them to be able to see where once they were blind. He's enabled them to be able to hear where once they could not hear. There's a miracle that has occurred. They have been regenerated. They've been reborn, if you will. Even though Nicodemus didn't quite understand that. But one must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. 3,000 souls were added that day. The last number we had was 120. So those of you who are mathematicians, figure out the percentage increase for me, please. It's quite large. Quite large. But let's be clear. The Lord did the adding. The Lord did the adding. How did he do it? He did it through his word. He did it through the Holy Spirit convicting the listeners on that day of Pentecost. That's how he did it. So all these gimmicks and plans that are out there today, how are you going to grow your church? First of all, this isn't my church. Second of all, what I understand the word to say is that he brings about the growth in his church as his word is faithfully preached. It's a praise. It's going to keep getting better as we go. Next week, we're going to see in verses 42 through 47 what the life of this church was like. Church, let's take really good notes next week. I hope you took good notes this week. There's a lot of good things here in what Peter had to say through the Spirit. But next week, we're going to see how this all played out in the life of this early church. And it's not just some 2,000 years ago, but Lord, I do believe the Lord intended, as he put it in writing and preserved it for us, that this too ought to be a template for what our lives together ought to look like. What we're to devote ourselves to. Praise the Lord that he explained what this outpouring of the Spirit was all about.
So in response to the question, whatever could this mean? Peter stands and points to the Old Testament. Shows them the Old Testament. Talked about how this was going to happen. But he doesn't stop at verse 21. He takes verses 22 through 36, essentially, and shows them Jesus and preaches Jesus and shows them that from Jesus we then arrive at where we are now. And this explains what you now hear and see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. So grateful, Lord, that you have given to us an explanation of your plan of salvation. You've given that to us in many different ways in the scripture, through many different writers. Your word points us to Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would oftentimes in our conversations with people, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit would help us to navigate our conversations toward Christ. That we would begin with Christ, that we would continue with Christ and conclude with Christ in the word. May we never be ashamed of your word. I pray, Lord, that today we would see the importance of our response, even, as we see here in the text the response of those who were listening, the multitude that had gathered. Father, we also read in the text that there were some, some who didn't respond, some who were not added that day. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be attentive to hear your spirit. And I pray even for those here today, Lord, who may not know Jesus, may not have a relationship with Jesus. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit to convict them of the sin in their lives that they might see. They might be able to see clearly the distance that separates them with you because of their sin. I pray then that they would be able to see, Father, from your word that the cross took care of that sin problem. That they would be able to see that the power and the guilt of sin in their lives has been taken care of through what Christ did at the cross. And that, God, you raised up your son, Jesus. And now he's ascended. And now we await his return. Oh, Lord, that return, that great and awesome day, as Joel writes, it's coming. And Lord, for those here today who have put that off for some time, I pray, Lord, that if necessary, Father, you would impress upon them the pending judgment to come. Oh, Father, I pray they'll be able to see clearly that when you come, when your son comes, that there's going to be judgment. And Father, I pray in light of that judgment, that they would see their need for Christ, see their need for a Savior, understand how their sin has separated them from you. Oh, Father, I pray that they would see that. And in the meantime, I pray for this church at Hope in Christ, and I pray that we would be mindful of that very judgment to come, and that because of that judgment to come, we would then speak boldly of Christ. 
and tell others this wonderful news, this truth that we have. Oh, Lord, I pray there would not be a day goes by where we don't, as we hear words that are spoken, that we do not uh, fail to, to interject the truth of God's word. Let us make sure that we, in love, in meekness, in gentleness, insert the truth of God in exchange for the lie that's being spread abroad. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for this word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.